Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I know what you're thinking. We hear this story of Jesus coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. The people of God are, are gathered together for worship when all of a sudden, there's a man with an unclean spirit, a demon right there in, the, in their midst, and there's this showdown between the Savior, between the Messiah, and between the demon. They're going back and forth, and there's the crying, the screaming from the demon, and then Jesus, be silent, come out of him, and he's convulsed, and everybody's going crazy. Word of Jesus spreads everywhere. And I know what you're thinking. Worship is way less interesting today. And fair enough, fair enough. But joking aside, you might really be wondering, when we hear the story of Jesus exercising this demon among the people of God on the Sabbath day, you might be wondering to yourself, that's cool and all, but how is that relevant to us today? I mean, Pastor Tanetti almost never does that during worship. So how does this really apply to us still now? But what if I told you that in fact, this is still happening every Sabbath day, that there is more, way more than meets the eye when we gather for worship. Now, we need to look more closely at the story because the devil is in the details, as they say. And quite literally, in this case, the devil is in the details, in a couple of yous, not use guys, but words that start with you in the story. The first of those words is unclean, unclean. So we are told that this man was in an unclean spirit. You notice it doesn't say that he was demon-possessed or that it was an evil spirit, although I think both of those things are true. This is, a, this is a demon that this man is dealing with here. It is an evil spirit, but Mark makes it a point to say that it was an unclean spirit. And we should pay attention to that and ask what is the extra nuance that's added by calling it an unclean spirit. See, uncleanness from a, a biblical perspective, it speaks to a heart that is unrepentant and therefore unfit for the kingdom of God. That to be unclean means that you are unworthy to enter God's holy presence. You think of the story from the Old Testament of the prophet Isaiah. When he gets that vision of the Lord in the temple high and lifted up, and the angels, the, the cherubim are there, and they're singing out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He recognizes that to come into the presence of the holy God while being unclean makes him unfit for the presence of God, for participation in the reign and rule of God. Now that brings us to the second you that shows up in this text. So the man is in an unclean spirit and Jesus arrives in the synagogue and is teaching. What does that spirit cry out to them or cry out to the Lord Jesus? Is away from us. Away from us, it cried. That first person plural, that you word, us. Why does the demon say us? 
When Mark speaks of the unclean spirit, he uses the singular. When Jesus addresses the man with the unclean spirit, he also uses the singular. Why does this unclean spirit itself speak in the plural? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, a couple of answers could be given to that. One is to say that perhaps in this case, as we see in other stories in the Gospels, it's not just one demon, but in fact, it's a whole bunch of them. You remember the, the garrisoned demoniac, the man who said, what is your name? And he says, and it gives me the creeps just to think about it, my name is Legion, for we are many, right? So it could be the case here that this unclean spirit is not alone, that he's got a whole army behind him. Or it could also be, it could also be that this demon simply wants to deceive Jesus. He's serving the father of lies, the devil himself, and so it wouldn't be, uh, unsur it would be unsurprising if he were to say, oh, yeah, yeah, me and my buddies over here, there's a lot of us, Jesus, you might want to back off. Both of those answers are plausible. But given the context, I think the most likely case is the third one. See, this unclean spirit comes into the synagogue among a people with unclean lips, among a gathering of sinners. And what that demon is saying is, Jesus, you are, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And so what have you to do with us? with me and with all of these other unclean sinners that are gathered here. The kids and I have been reading the uh, Little House stories, and one of the things you find out about or that I learn about early American history is that you would have the claim jumpers, the people who suddenly show up on your claim and say, this belongs to me. Satan is the original claim jumper, see. And what this unclean spirit is saying, what he is doing is he is laying claim to all the people who are gathered there in the synagogue on that day and saying, hey, Jesus, holy one of God, what does the holy God have to do with these unclean, sinful people? And the answer, the disturbing answer that all of them knew in their hearts and that you and I know too, is nothing. A holy God has nothing to do with unclean people. I mean, going all the way back to the Old Testament, this was the, the when you read the book of Leviticus, if you read the book of Leviticus, this was really the purpose of that whole book, is how can a holy God dwell among an unholy, unclean people? This was the reason for the institution of the whole sacrificial system. This is why they needed a, a holy place set apart where the people of God would go through all kinds of different things in order to make themselves clean and fit to enter the presence of God. We know that in our hearts we are all of us stained with sin. We are all of us soiled with unclean uh, transgression and turning away from God. We are unfit for the presence of the Holy One. It's true. Except that here in the, our gathering today, as it was in the synagogue on that day, there was the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, who came down into our world in order to invade it, to bind that strong man, Satan, and say, you have no claim on these sinners any longer, because now by my redeeming blood, I am going to blot out all of the soil and stain of sin, and that now my redemptive love will forgive them and make them clean and whole and holy mind. You 
have no claim here, unclean spirit. Be silent and come out of the man. This is the authority that our Lord Jesus has, that he is the king of kings, that he lays claim over you and me and says these sinners, these unclean people, are now forgiven, saints in my sight. That's who you are. And this cosmic contest between Satan and between the Savior, it continues unabated until the end of time. Now make no mistake, Jesus has the victory. His victory is ours by faith, see. But that doesn't stop Satan from fighting. That doesn't stop his minions from coming after us to try to, to lead us away, to draw us away from Christ. And so we need to continually flee to the refuge of the authority of Christ Jesus, to live under him as our head. And here, to come back to where we started, here is where worship is continually relevant, why there is more going on here than meets the eye. See, when we gather together to receive God's gifts, to hear his word, Christ Jesus is continually casting out the evil one and saying of you and me, ah, this one is clean. This one belongs to me. And so we might think of an analogy. You remember that uh, section in the scriptures in Ephesians 6 when St. Paul speaks of the whole armor of God. You familiar with this? Speaks of the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and so on. Well, I'd like to extend that metaphor a little bit more and think about how some of the gifts that we receive in worship continue to fortify that armor, see, equip us even further in the duel against the devil. So let me just lift up a, a few elements of our worship. I can't highlight all of them, but just a few of them. So first of all, let's think about confession and absolution. Confession and absolution. See, even when you are armored, when you're covered with armor, there's going to be gaps in your armor. So confession and absolution is like that chain mail. Not those annoying emails that you get that then, you know, your grandparents forwarded to you and then you're supposed to send forward. I'm talking about like what the soldiers of old used to wear. Underneath their external armor, they had an interior armor that would guard over and protect the gaps. And so it is with confession and absolution. See, we are acknowledging the gaps in our armor. We're recognizing and affirming, I am sinful and what? Unclean. We're speaking that truth. And this is why it's so potent, so powerful, I think. Because we are granting the devil's point and saying, yes, that's right, evil one. I am in myself sinful and unclean. I am unworthy to enter the presence of the holy God. But guess what? There is the holy one who has intervened, intervened on my behalf. And he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So when we speak that truth about ourselves, confessing our sin, we're acknowledging the gaps in our armor, but then putting on the chain mail of Christ's absolution, his forgiveness afresh, living anew under his authority. You might secondly think about the confession of the creed. When we confess the creed, or what the scriptures otherwise call our word of testimony. Here, if we can think a little more abstractly in terms of that armor analogy, here it's like the oath that we take. It's the pledge of allegiance that we take to our King, to Jesus, which has power in itself. 
In confessing the creed, we are renouncing all other would-be gods and all other claims on our allegiance. And instead, we are saying, I belong to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who claimed me in holy baptism, who washed me of all my sins, of all my uncleannesses, and who said, you are mine. The one who branded me with his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Week by week, as we confess the creed, we are giving a full-throated allegiance to our Lord Jesus and saying, my oath is to him. He is the one that I belong to, and I renounce you, evil one. In fact, in the early church, when they would first, when the, the new um, baptisms, the ones who are first um, coming into the church, when they would confess the faith first, they would face the West. The West was considered the evil direction, so to speak. I'm not making any kind of other contemporary claims. Uh, but that, that was that you would renounce the devil, and then you would turn to the East, from whence we expect our Lord Jesus to come, and you would confess him as your Lord and God. So when we gather together as the people of God, and I've pointed this out before, and our church faces east, see, as it, as it ought, as any good church does. When we stand to confess our faith, we are professing and pledging our allegiance to the Lord again. And then if I might mention a third aspect to our worship, this inner armor of God that we have, is when you and I receive the blood of the Lamb which is the very elixir of life, or as people in the early church would call it, the medicine of immortality. When we come and receive Jesus' very body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins, there again we come with all of our uncleannesses, with all the, the sin and the junk that we carry with us this week. We lay it here at the altar and receive from the Lord instead his forgiving love, that he blots out all of those sins and all of those uncleannesses. And not only that, but he gives us not only the external armor, but also the internal. As you receive his body and blood in your mouth and it goes into your heart and into your soul to renew you from the inside out, to protect every last inch of your body and soul. These are the gifts that we receive in worship, and week by week, we continue to be fortified against the evil one as he is cast out, and instead, Christ is enthroned as king. And let me give you one last one, and this was illustrated for me powerfully in the novel, This Present Darkness, which many of you are familiar with this, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I had never read it until one of you lent it to me recently. It's, it's kind of the classic story of spiritual warfare. And there's this one moment in the story when there's this great war going on, a hidden war that's happening, a spiritual war uh, above the people of God. The angels and the demons are battling and, and down below all the humans, all the members of the church are really struggling and wrestling and wondering what is going on here? And then this little old feeble lady named Edith Duster, kind of the consummate old lady name. Edith Duster comes in and she says, Dear saints, let us pray. And she leads the people of God in prayer and suddenly all of the demons are struck down and the angels are beating them with their swords and it's awesome, right? I mean, pastors get really excited about this kind of stuff. And then the lead demon, his name is Raphar, he finds himself, he's bleeding out down on the ground, oh, and he's cursing, he's cursing and saying, oh, but for the saints of God and their prayers. Oh. It's pretty cool. But it shows, see, that power of prayer, which is the battle cry of the baptized. 
When we gather as the people of God, when we pray the Our Father, when we profess God's power, when we lay claim to His victory, what He has already done, the demons are destroyed. Jesus is exalted, and you and I receive an even greater protection from the angels of God. All of this and more is happening when we gather together in worship. As Christ is exalted, the devil is defied, and you as the people of God are edified and built up, belonging to him week by week. It happens that our sins are made clean, that now the redemptive, powerful blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, washes away all that soils us, all that separates us from the Holy One and says, now you are holy, you are clean, you belong to none other but the King Christ Jesus. His claim belongs to you. And so the next time somebody says to you, or you think to yourself, boy, this worship is kind of boring. Say, ah, no, there is more, way more than meets the eye. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.